<laughs> Mostly, I wasn't so far away. I was. I. I. I, uh, I traveled some, but uh, maybe I'll tell a story about being away. But I'm really glad to be back. And what I was, what I really wanted to talk about tonight, uh, because I've been thinking about it a lot, and uh, I love talking about it is about wisdom and equanimity and how they uh, they really can almost be used synonymously with each other. When you think about the Buddha and the story of the Buddha's enlightenment, uh, the story of his awakening and his awakening to wisdom is very closely equated with his being able to sit quietly with his mind trained to equanimity. So I want to talk about equanimity and how wisdom protects it Equanimity being that kind of balance of mind that can hold a range of emotions. You know, equanimity is different from tranquility. They are both factors of enlightenment. But tranquility conveys a kind of a serenity and calmness. Equanimity isn't calmness. Equanimity isn't anything other than that uh, capacity of mind to be aware of what's ever present in the mind and to hold it with some degree of balance in a non-contentious, non-coercive way. I think of equanimity as being synonymous with peace in a way, being synonymous, being the, 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 the ground out of which wisdom keeps arising. And I want to talk about equanimity being also the birthplace of uh, friendliness and compassion and appreciation the other three of the Brahma Viharas, equanimity, friendliness, compassion, and empathic joy or appreciation are the four divine abodes, that was what the Buddha called them, superb places, uh, uh, really heavenly places, divine abodes, uh, heavenly places for the mind to dwell. So I wanted to talk about how... Uh, uh, equanimity and mindfulness support each other and how they both give birth to that expression of the mind in friendliness and in compassion and in appreciation, which are three ways of saying in kindness. And I want to tell you, I thought I would tell you first of all about how it's uh, understanding this practice as leading to kindness that probably was what originally attracted me to doing it. Because the truth is that in the 1970s, when many people were becoming interested in meditation, uh, how many people here began to meditate in the 1970s? And uh, Every kind of meditation suddenly became interesting. The Beatles came back and announced that they were doing uh, TM with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and TM became very interesting to many people. How many people here were initiated into TM? Myself as well. The truth is that I did many things uh, before I discovered this. And uh, actually, my husband was a much more uh, passionate seeker of the path to enlightenment. I was busily going to work and raising my children, and uh, peripherally to me, he was actually going off most weekends and getting initiated into various things and studying this and that and coming home, and often he'd come home and he'd say, we laugh about this now, he'd come home and he'd say, Syl, this is it, you should do this. And I'd, and I'd, go, and I'd go, because I'm, I'm actually a fairly congenial person, 
I'd go off and do this or that and get initiated into it. And I never did anything that was bad for me, and I never got into trouble doing anything. But, there, uh, but nothing, nothing actually captivated me enough to want to practice it either. And then at some point he went with a friend up for, to a two-week mindfulness retreat and he came home and he said so this is it really <laughs> and uh, so I decided I would I would go to a uh, one weekend retreat down in San Jose and he drove me down on a Friday afternoon and dropped me off and uh, it's a good thing he dropped me off and took the car because I might not have stayed otherwise because it was a very very hard weekend for me it was in a private house in San Jose and it was very crowded. There were, you know, I don't know, 15, 18 people there in a two- or three-bedroom house sleeping on mattresses next to each other in the two bedrooms that were available and all these people getting dressed and undressed next to each other, strangers. It wasn't exactly a scene I was used to. And, uh, and uh, also sitting all day long and sitting and walking and sitting and walking. It was June. It was hot. Hadn't a clue really because I didn't understand well enough what it is that the goal of the practice was. So I spent, and I had a terrible headache because he hadn't told me that there was no coffee at the retreat. So I had a, had a caffeine withdrawal headache. So I was beside myself, and I spent most of the weekend preparing the indignant speeches that I was going to make <laughs> when he picked me up on Sunday and tell him what kind of nonsense. What kind of nonsense is this, and why am I here, and what is, what is this all about, and, the, and whatever, I, you know, who knows what I prepared. But here's the truth. The weekend finished, and two months later, I was on a plane of my own free will, having signed up to go to a two-week mindfulness retreat in Toledo, Washington, and I never left after that, and it was it. So... When I tell people that story about my weekend and how distressing it was, uh, they ask uh, clearly, why after that unhappy experience did you go back? And I say, well, I really don't know. I have a photo framed on my wall that's a black and white photo taken at the end of the retreat. You know, when you have an experience at the end, like a camp photo, everybody takes a picture. So there's a photo of me, and there's a couple of lines of people sitting, and I'm in the front row on the end, and I'm smiling. So that's a hint that maybe, maybe actually, in spite of the fact that I remember it for its difficulties, maybe actually I had some intuition that this might be the practice that I really didn't even know yet that I was looking for, but was looking for to make a big difference in my life, because something about it caused me to smile. The other thing that I remember is that this was a private home and I was doing my walking practice, walking back and forth, back and forth in the living room of this house, back and forth in front of the fireplace that had a mantelpiece and on the mantelpiece was a uh, carved wood burl, the kind that you get in a, in a national park. They normally polish burl and it normally says something like... Uh, home sweet home, or sisters are friends forever, or something like that. And here was, I'm walking back and forth in front of this mantelpiece with the burl, and what it said was, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? And I think back, and I'm not sure, but I think it was the burl that brought me back. (laughs) 
because there was something that touched some chord in me that knew that, in fact, a warm heart was the response to the difficulty of life. Life really is difficult. And I did know that. I thought a lot about that, actually. I was, uh, at that time, 40 years old. Uh, It was just before my 45th birthday. I was 40 years old. Uh, I, I had a family. I have the very good fortune to have uh, had uh, four children who were all then by then adolescents at, or more. And so growing up, and I had a profession. I'm a psychologist, I'm a psychotherapist, that I was very happy with. So in fact, I had really everything good in my life. And on some very profound level, I knew that there, uh, that there was a kind of pain in life that I was afraid of sometime having to face. I don't know. Sometimes I tell people the story of uh, the car that um, ran, off the, uh, ran off the street uh, right on Sir Francis Drake, right near where I live in Kentfield, and rode up on the sidewalk and killed two little girls on their way to school. Uh, one of them was a classmate of my daughter, who was then a second grader, and the other one was her sister. And uh, I, you know, that wasn't the first time I ever heard of tragedies happening to children. And, and in fact, I worried for the well-being of all my family. Maybe it, that particular factor happening just at that point really startled my mind into thinking it really could happen to you, but it really could happen to anyone, ever. Uh, Often when I'm driving down the highway, uh, and I live up in Geyserville now, and I drive up and down the highway quite a lot, uh, often there's an accident that you go by. And so all of a sudden what will happen is the traffic will be all crowded up, and so the first thought in the mind is annoyance. Fooey, the traffic is all crowded up. Now I'll be late for whatever it is that I've got to do. And uh, why is there only one person in each car? They should put more than one person in each car. Look how thick the traffic is. Not thinking, well, of course, I'm also alone in my car at that point. <laughs> but being annoyed about the fact that there's... And then finally coming upon the reason that the traffic is crowded and the fact that there's an accident that's just happening, happened. Sometimes seeing ambulances there or no ambulances there but tow trucks and terribly smashed up cars so that you know that someone really got hurt, more than one person maybe really got hurt. And then all the uh, self-serving distress, my problem of my clogged freeway, goes away and you think about somebody isn't going home tonight and how capricious life is. I'll read you a, I'll read a poem to you from one of my, uh, one of my other favorite Dharma teachers. This is Billy Collins, Poet Laureate. This is called Picnic Lightning. It is possible to be struck by a meteor or a single-engine plane while reading in a chair at home. Safes do drop from rooftops and flatten the odd pedestrian, mostly within the panels of the comics, but still 
we know it is possible, as well as the flash of summer lightning, the thermos toppling over, spilling out on the grass. And we know that the message can be delivered from within, the heart, no valentine, decides to quit after lunch, the power shut off like a switch, or a tiny dark ship is unmoored into the flow of the body's rivers, the brain a monastery, defenseless on the shore. This is what I think about when I shovel compost into a wheelbarrow and when I fill the long flower boxes and press into rows the limp roots of red impatience, the instant hand of death always ready to burst forth from the sleeve of his voluminous cloak. Then the soil is full of marvels, bits of leaf like flakes off a fresco, red-brown pine needles, a beetle quick to burrow back under the loam. Then the wheelbarrow is a wilder blue, the clouds a brighter white, and all I hear is the rasp of the steel edge against a round stone, the small plants singing with lifted faces, and the click of the sundial as one hour sweeps into the next. Billy Collins, Picnic Lightning is the name of the poem from a book, a collection named for that particular poem, Picnic Lightning. You really never know. My grandfather, in commenting about the problems of life, you know, the Buddha said it very elegantly in the First Noble Truth, life is suffering. <clears throat> Didn't mean that every minute is painful. It meant that everything is always changing and our happiness, therefore, is, ephemeral, is as ephemeral as our sorrows. Everything is passing. There's nothing you can hold on. Just when you get comfortable, things change. And we have to keep coming back and re-accommodating to life. I have a friend, I like to say she's an old friend. She really is an old friend. She's 95, uh, so she's an old friend. And I know her a long time, so she's an old friend. And uh, she, uh, not so long ago, moved into an assisted living facility. And she wrote me a note, a letter, and said, I really need for you to come and teach here in the... uh, new facility where I'm now I need to live because I can't make it on my own anymore. She said, uh, and other people here would need to hear your teaching too. We need a mindfulness class, she said, because we're all having trouble adjusting to our new situation. So I did go, and that's another whole story that I won't tell you here, but uh, that line, we're all having trouble because we're adjusting to our new situation, I think it's the story of all of us, all the time, more or less every minute, from the beginning of our life till the end. Sometimes a big adjust and sometimes a little adjust. Isn't that true? When my granddaughter uh, started kindergarten, my youngest granddaughter started kindergarten, uh, her mother, looking in the rearview mirror, noticed that she uh, that Honor looked unhappy on the way to school. And she'd been two years to preschool, so she was perfectly fine about being away from her mother or being in school. She said, Honor, are you all right? She said, no, I'm worrying. I said, well, what are you worrying about? She said, I'm worrying about that I won't know where to put my lunch pail. So 
I said, well, sweetheart, the teacher will surely tell you where to put the lunch pail. But there's always something to worry about. You know, I worry about where to put the lunch pail, and I'm worried about whether I'm going to be able to get these times tables, and I'm worried about whether I'll be able to live in this pubertal body who's doing all this new stuff, and I'm worrying about if I'll, if I'll figure out what to do with my sexuality, and how am I going to make a relationship, and how am I going to make a living, and how am I going to deal with this or that ailment that's now overtaking my body, and how am I going to do with the fact that I'm getting old? How am I going to deal with the fact that I'm uh, having children and I never had somebody else to take care of? How am I going to deal with an empty nest? From one end to the other, there is how am I going to deal with this new situation? And we're always accommodating, and all the accommodatings are accommodating some kind of loss, some kind of comfort. It's a new challenge. Uh, my grandfather used to say, uh, often after he hears some very terrible news about something that had happened to a friend of his or someone he knew, or some turn of fortune in his family or in the families of someone he knew, and you could see that he was having trouble uh, assimilating this um, bad news and he'd be reflecting about it. And then he would take a long breath. He always said the same thing, but he would precede it with a long breath, he'd take a long breath in. He'd say, it's very hard to be a person. <laughs> That's roughly translated from the Yiddish, but the word that he used for the word that he used for a person in Yiddish really means a person of substance, a substantial person, a person you can depend on. It means it's really hard to hold it together given this life. It's really hard to hold it together and to be able to be there for other people and reliable and dependable, given the buffeting around by the vicissitudes of fate that happened to all of us. Really, everything depends on equanimity, depends on knowing that everything changes, that it's not a mistake that we have to keep catching our balance and starting again depends on knowing that things are the way they are because of a myriad of causes going back to the beginning of everything. That, they're, they're, that karma is lawful, that things happen because other things happen. And what we do, what I do, what you do, every, what every single one of us does, and it matters. But I'm not in charge. Not any one of us is. Not of what happens or of what did happen. I'm a part of it, and I'm a part of the future, just as you are. Even saying, well, I'm not going to do anything, is doing something. We are all obligated, I think, to make ourselves part of the future by acting in every way that we can. But I'm not in charge. The Billy Collins poem reminds me of that all the time. You never know what's going to happen in the next moment. So maybe maybe it's it's the awareness that that awareness maybe it's knowing that that makes the wheelbarrow a wilder blue and the clouds a brighter white now because that's what I have now and leads to some in fact equanimity knowing that I'm not in charge if I were I'm not in charge to be able to say what's my response to this moment can I bring my most loving and appreciative heart to this moment? 
I thought I would tell you two stories together because one of them is a timeless, legendary story and the other one is a story of a friend of mine recently. And I think they're the same story in a certain way where they make the same point. I'm trying to think of which one I should tell you first. I'll tell you the Buddha story first. And many of you will know this story about uh, the, the, the story of the night of the Buddha's enlightenment and uh, uh, to say in two sentences for those people who might not know that Siddhartha Gautama, born uh, somewhere around uh, 500 years before uh, the common era, uh, according to legend, was born into circumstances that protected him from knowing about the, the, the truths of life, that we are parted from everything that is dear to us and everything arises, passes away, and things die, and there is old age and sickness and death. And I, I think his story... Uh, legend or not. Uh, I like it if it's a legend because I think it's everyone's legend. I think it's all of our story that at some point in all of our lives, in all of your lives probably, as in mine, there's the awareness that, uh uh-oh, in this life for all of us, we're not in charge and there is old age if we get there, sickness (coughs) at some point, old or young, and death if accident doesn't preclude sickness but but there is being parted from what's dear to us or we being taken away from people who hold us dear there's all this parting ahead of all parting is the line from Rilke but there is all this parting and we all get that at some point sometimes when I'm in a group of people and teaching and it's small enough tonight is too big have people talk about what was their moment when they realized this is a very complicated business, this life. There's no way out but forward. (laughs) And everything happens to everybody sooner or later. Not every single thing happens to everyone, but distress comes into everyone's life. I think I really began my practice because I intuited and couldn't miss seeing that distress would come into my life and that I wasn't prepared to meet it. And I understood, even from my first Dharma talk that I heard, that this was the path to the wisdom that did not preclude pain, but somehow cultivated a mind with the equanimity necessary to be able to hold it. So here's the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment. He's gone forth from his household. He spent six years, three years and then three years, learning from the most renowned meditation masters of his time, cultivated, according to the story, the most amazing steady mind states, and said, after all, I need to leave and go on my own because I have not yet understood the cause and the end of suffering went off on his own in the classic story, sat down under the Bodhi tree on the night of his awakening, put his hand in his lap and his other hand, fingers on the ground, in the classic uh, mudra of uh, rootedness and balance. Presumably said, I have a right to be here. 
I think we all have a right to be here in the same sense that the Buddha meant. A right to be here in this life, awake to all of the challenges of life that will in one way or another meet us all through our lives until the end of our lives and to do it with enough benevolence of spirit, kindness of heart, uh, warm intent, appreciation for the extraordinariness of life itself and for the heroism of human beings. In spite of all the challenges, getting up in the morning, putting on clothes and doing this life, which for everyone is difficult. It's very hard to be a person. Out of that awareness of the courage of humans and continuing on in this, what he called, the Buddha called the realm of 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes, out of the awareness of that being moved ourselves to respond and cultivate a heart and a mind of kindness. The Buddha, on that particular night, in children's coloring books showing that image, you see him sitting under the tree with his hand here and his, uh, his hand in his lap, his other hand on the ground. And you see him being assailed by the, a personified vision, image, of the forces of Mara. Mara is the personification of confusing mind states, uh, alarming uh, ideas that bring alarm or ideas that arouse the mind erotically and confuse it. So here comes uh, Mara on uh, horses with uh, whole armies and uh, throwing spears and arrows. And here comes Mara in erotic guise. All of the attacks are designed to frighten the Buddha away from his place of equanimity or to arouse him and beguile him out of his place of equanimity. And here sits the Buddha refusing to be either beguiled or aroused into into fighting back or uh, into feeling aversion or to being frightened. Here sits the Buddha. And according to the stories about that moment, assailed by the forces of Mara, but protected by his own benevolence in in the images, he's actually uh, surrounded by uh, a kind of a shield and the uh, arrows that are thrown at him and the uh, spears that come towards him, when they hit the shield, they turn into flowers and fall on the ground around him. I love that image. I think that's beautiful. Anyway, here come all these uh, alarming or arousing images. And here sits the Buddha, and according to the story, he says, I see your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. I just love that. I think that's the best line, I am not afraid. I think for myself, it's one of those lines. That might be one of the lines I really want to be able to say in difficult moments of my life. I am not afraid. It's right up there with I have everything I want. Just the mind that doesn't need anything to be different. I think that's exactly it. I don't need to change it. The non-coercive mind, the mind of peace. And according to the story... That shield that's protecting him is his own benevolence, his own ability to project goodwill in the, in the face of difficulty. So that's the Buddha story. I'll tell you the story that goes with it, which is um, just a few years old. 
And it's a story uh, about, uh, well, here's a story. It happened on uh, a Friday afternoon that I had a message on my answering machine that began this way. It said, uh, Sylvia, this is Tamara. I'm calling to tell you, Tamara lives in Florida. She's making the phone call. This is Tamara. I'm just calling to tell you that you don't need to worry about me. Uh, for a moment, when I heard that first sentence, I was just so excited because, please, I thought, oh. Because two weeks before, having been um, diagnosed tentatively with probably ovarian cancer, Tamara had had surgery and had had a complete hysterectomy and all the, the surgery that you have with ovarian cancer, uh, first of all, diagnostically and also uh, therapeutically. So she'd had surgery, and the first uh, pathology reports had indicated uh, that the the surroundings were all negative, and uh, that they'd gotten it all and there was nothing to worry about. A week later, uh, there was some more worrisome Results. They called. She called and said, uh, "Further pathological reports seem to indicate that maybe it was had been more invasive, and there was something to worry about." Now here's this other phone call that said, "This is tomorrow. I'm calling to tell you you don't have to worry about me." And it was just a few days later. I thought, "Oh, praise be! They've done more pathology, and they've discovered that she actually doesn't have cancer." But then the message went on, and it said. Um, even though, you don't have to worry about me, even though Hurricane Francis is coming directly towards my town on the Florida border, I have some friends who live further inland who are coming to get me because my house has too much glass on the outside. And they're coming to get me. I'm going to stay in their house until the storm passes. I'll be safer there. So don't call me over the weekend or don't call me until the storm passes and I'll call you when I get back home. I don't want you to find me not home and worry about me. So, first of all, I, I, I uh, spent the whole weekend watching the Weather Channel. Um, and it was very touching to me and, and instructive and also touching to discover how... I'd never watched the Weather Channel before, actually, but how the storm in Florida became very important to me because I had someone dear living in Florida that suddenly all the people in Florida and the tracking of the the, the storm became really important for me to watch. And the newscasters on the Weather Channel became familiar to me because I watched them watch and they kept going back and forth. And I began to really uh, be moved by the fact that they're standing out in a gale forest winds to report this hurricane in the rain, in the parkers. Did you ever watch the Weather Channel? <laughs> and I would think to myself, you could, you, know, it, you could go inside and report, not stand in the gale. But actually, it's you know, it's I, I guess it's good theater actually. So they stand out there. But I saw one newscaster, a beautiful young woman, uh, telling about the gale force winds and it's blowing, and a piece of tile off a roof, I guess, came zooming past her, and she ducked down out of the camera range, and then she came right back up again and continued the newscast. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I wonder if her mother is watching her on television. <laughs> And I tell you that story because I think about, I'm really convinced that when our minds are awake, our temperament, our heart, our inclination 
is to care not only about the people that we know, but about people that we don't know. Human beings are empathic animals. We know how other people might feel because we intuit how we would feel under those circumstances. And we are moved, I think, when we are paying attention. We are moved to compassion, to kindness, to appreciation, to warm wishing, all the the permutations of kindness. Another reason why I don't think that mindfulness and loving-kindness are different practices. We wish well to others. It wakes up our minds because we realize how dear they are to us and how precious and how um, precarious life is. You can see that really uh, looking around in any way. After the storm, Tamara called me on on the following Monday, and she said this. She said, um, uh, we spent the whole night, she said, the the main part of the storm came through in the middle of the night, around midnight, she said, and uh, uh, of course all of the power was off, and she said, we were all in the dark. We were sitting in the living room together in our pajamas, huddling on a sofa, and uh, mostly sitting quietly, she said, (coughs) except when the wind was most fierce and blowing and wild and we were most frightened. Then we did metta prayers out loud and uh, we did them for the people around us in the storm, the people in the houses around us, the people in the town, the people in all of Florida. She said, and when we prayed for the people around us, it made us feel more easy. And I was so clear about her intention in telling me that that there's something about not feeling alone in, in, uh, in one's challenge. Not only sitting with friends, but wishing wider than may I and my friends be safe, but may everyone in Florida be safe, may everyone in trouble be safe. Really the awareness that we all of us are sharing difficulty one kind or another, in this case sharing the difficulty of the storm. She said, when we pray for other people, we felt better. So when she got all finished, I told her the story of my having heard the message the previous Friday. And I said, you know, dear, when I heard the message, for a minute I thought, oh, praise be, they've redone the pathology and you don't have cancer. She said, no, I have cancer. She said, but I didn't think about it over the weekend. She said, because that wasn't what was happening. And when we were all together, we were all imperiled, cancer or no cancer, we were all imperiled. And that awareness, really, with whatever we've got, cancer or this or that or another problem in our life, we are all imperiled, all of us. We are imperiled by the challenges of life that befall us whenever they do. And that awareness doesn't take away our stuff, but it puts it in a larger context. It's not a mistake, then, that any of us is challenged. All of us are challenged. My friend Martha, who died two years ago of uh, pancreas cancer and was a practitioner and a student here at Spirit Rock, said to me uh, about uh, her awareness of her impending death. Uh, She said, uh, thinking about, she said, sometimes I get, she said, I don't think I'm being a very good Buddhist about this cancer. I said, well, why is that? She said, well, I'm not open to this experience and accommodating. 
It's a sweetheart, you have cancer, and you know, pancreas cancer, and you know, you're not supposed to. It's a terrible thing that you have. She said, well, she said, I should, I, I should be something better than this. I, sh- I, sa- I said, as long as you're not mad at it. She said, well, sometimes I am mad at it. I said, well, as long as you're not mad at yourself for being mad at it, then... <laughs> she said, well, you know what it is? She said, when I'm mad at it, when I'm mad, she said, and I think to myself, why me, why me? She said, then, I, then I'm actually suffering. She said, every once in a while I get caught in it, and I think, why me, why me? I'm so young, why me? She said, and then all of a sudden I'll think to myself, why not me? This is one of the things that people get. Why not me? So when I think that, I'm not any happier about dying, but I'm not suffering so much. And really I see that as what moves in is wisdom. Why not me? This is one of the things that happens to people. When the mind is wise and it realizes what's true, it relaxes and it becomes non-contentious. Remember in the very beginning when I was suggesting that for our meditation instructions you use the phrase... As, a, as an orienter of the mind as he began to sit, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. And I talked about Nyanapanakatera saying that mindfulness was the mind that's non-coercive, that doesn't insist that things be different in order for it to relax and be present and say this is what's true. I wanted to talk a little bit, um, I think I have been, but I wanted to say again about um, sometimes the notion that many of you have heard about this is mindfulness practice, this is loving-kindness practice. And I want to really say that for me, I think that real mindfulness, awareness of what's happening, has inherent in it a non, uh, non-judgmental, non-coercive, non-reactive, actually warmly cordial greeting of that moment. Even moments that we don't like. I'm always thinking of a woman who's a Wednesday morning uh, uh, regular at a Wednesday morning class here who, uh, upon hearing that uh, she has an, uh, she has multiple uh, MS. It's an autoimmune disease that can last a long time and has different courses and different people, but requires getting used to living with. And she said, I'm so glad I have this practice. She said, on my wall I have a big sign that my father, who's a woodworker, carved for me because he knew that this was my phrase that I liked the most out of my Buddhist practice. And the phrase is, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. I look at that all the time when I, I can see it from my bed. The ability for the mind to say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got, and to accommodate that. It's an act of kindness to oneself, not to upset the mind with what's happening. Not to upset the mind, I think, requires mindfulness, it requires concentration to steady the mind, it requires effort to notice when the mind is closed in on what's a, on one particular upsetting point, something as upsetting as uh, cancer or something trivial. Maybe this is the time. I'll read you a story. I, I'm, uh, 
I could tell you this, I'll probably end up telling it to you. I, kinda, I like the way I read it, wrote it, but I'll, I'll tell it to you and I'll read part of it, just so you'll see how the book sounds. But, uh, and also, so I'll tell it as well as I want to tell it. Because you can get, the mind can get upset about having pancreas cancer or a, a, a broken love affair. It can get upset about something that's absolutely... Here's a story. I had been very glad and proud to have been asked to help plan the design for the contemplative floor, a meditation room and an adjacent silent library space that was being included in the building of a new Jewish community center in Manhattan in New York City. This was 19... I can't read. I tell you the story. This was 1920... (laughs) And this was two thousand. This was the year two thousand. So in, it was. It was the year two thousand. So it's a tremendously innovative thing to take the a whole floor of a eight story building with swimming pools and gyms and basketball courts and all the classrooms that are part of traditional JCCs and take a whole floor and make a contemplative floor and have a library room and a uh, a meditation room where, in fact, they practice mindfulness meditation. Seventh floor on Amsterdam Avenue and 79th Street in uh, New York City. And when the building was built and the floor and the, the including this, the space that uh, I had been included in the designing, I was one of the two teachers, I along with my friend Sheila Weinberg, that taught the inaugural class in that uh, meditation space. And it was a class for rabbis. Uh, who are interested in learning mindfulness meditation. And so all morning long we sat and we walked and Sheila and I gave instructions and uh, I was happy to notice that... uh, Maybe I will read. I was pleased... I'll tell it better. No, I can't. I was pleased to notice that the tenor of the discourse became more leisurely as people seemed to settle into paying attention moment to moment to their experience. By lunchtime, the atmosphere in the room seemed to me palpably more relaxed. We gave, Sheila and I gave instructions for eating meditation. In essence, pay attention to the sensations of eating along with all the thoughts and feelings that arise about the experience. And then we all repaired to the library next door where a buffet lunch had been set out. People went through the line silently and sat at the long library tables to eat. Most people chose seats that looked out at the windows so that out the windows so that they could watch the rain. I did too. Then I heard a conversation happening on the other side of the wall that divided the library and meditation room space from the rest of the seventh floor. Three hearts beats three diamonds. I wasn't sure I'd heard correctly. That's right, three hearts beats three diamonds. Everyone knows that. What is that, I'm thinking to myself. This is meant to be a contemplative space. Who designed this place? What is going on here? I stood up and I noticed as I walked along the wall of this dividing wall that the designer had left spaces between the rooms at the edge of each wall. What were they thinking, I'm thinking? No one should be hearing anything, let alone card games. And I walked to the end of the wall and I peeked through the space. There were old men and women playing cards. I sat back down and noticed that the other people in the room all seemed to be watching the rain and eating their lunch. I sat back down and I was about to eat mine 
when I heard the sound of shuffling feet behind me. I turned and saw several elderly people, undoubtedly the card players, helping themselves to the food on our buffet. (laughs) My mind thought, this is the last straw. That's our food. I looked around to see if the program director of the center, a participant in the retreat, was there. I thought I'd let her handle the situation. It took several minutes to pick her out. Who knows, maybe it was a steady... In the several minutes, seconds it took to pick her out, who knows, maybe it was the steady sound of rain drilling on the windows or the sight of so many friends and colleagues contentedly eating, I changed my mind. Or it changed itself. The indignation that had filled it, our silence, our food, disappeared. Right now, remembering the moment, I think it was the pleasure I felt seeing so many people I loved feeling good that soothed my ruffled mind and let its own wisdom take over. And this is the part I really wanted to read to you because this is the part that is really important because it's always true that there are two wisdoms. There's the situational wisdom and there's the essential wisdom. The situational wisdom in this case went like this. These are elderly people living in nearby apartments who would otherwise be indoors in this weather, eager for company probably. Here they meet and play cards and spend the day happily. Of course I wanted them to be there and... There was plenty of food, and we'd all had our portions. And if someone had told me that there were homeless people outside the building on Amsterdam Avenue who needed the food, I would surely have carried it down. Why not share it with the bridge players? Why not, indeed? I think my mind, somewhat proprietary about the space I had planned and the program I had designed, jumped to the conclusion that the, so to speak, disruption of the noises in the next room would upset the relaxed mind states we'd all been cultivating all morning and that the good feeling I'd hoped people would report at the end of the day wouldn't happen. My day wasn't going the way I had planned. I suppose my ego, hoping for a personal reward, had a moment of frenzy thinking that it wouldn't happen. I'm not even sure that it was the realization that my ego was involved that calmed my mind back into clarity. Maybe it was my view of my friends looking happy that assured my ego of its reward. Maybe both. And here is the eternal wisdom. There are always challenges. You plan for one thing and something else often happens. The long view, is this a desirable thing or an undesirable thing, is rarely immediately apparent. Immediate emotional responses are just that. Noticing them and reflecting is always a good idea. And the cause of suffering always is struggling with challenge rather than responding with sound judgment and kindness. The mind closes down. You imagine the mind. I like to think about uh, my mind, everybody's mind, as being uh, uh, something like the huge television sets that people have with those special remote controls where you can be watching this program over here and you have a remote control that you can watch another program in a small box over here. So you can watch the Notre Dame-USC game over here and you can watch the Army-Navy game in the little box if it's important to you to know what scores each one of them have at a certain time to know playoffs. I think my mind is the same, that, that here is this big screen on which I could be watching 
the drama of six billion human lives, not to speak of other kinds of forms of six billion human lives unfolding, an incredible drama with all this, everybody with their 10,000 joys and woes. I could see even the planetary drama of this particular planet, this rock in space going around its star uh, in the absolutely right time, moving at the exact right uh, speed to keep the seasons changing in the exact right way so that the crocuses are now coming up in California and next month the flowering quince will come up in California in a miraculous way, knowing it year after year. I could look at this and appreciate the drama of just life happening. Not my life, but the life. That life is happening in this complex and amazing way that the cosmos is happening in this cosmos, in this complex and amazing way. I could look at this and be astounded and awestruck and often am. Or I could look at this little box over here showing this movie called Sylvia Faces Life or something, <laughs> which got a little bit of a story in it and her people all going about their business. And sometimes, and this is fine, sometimes what's happening in my people is so compelling that it fills up the whole screen. And sometimes it ought to because it, sometimes it commands that much attention and sometimes it feels totally overwhelming and absorbing. I can handle what's happening in this box better when, as long as I can keep some amount of the other screen around it, some amount of context around it. <coughs> this is my story, but this is the bigger story. This is something that happens, this is happening to me, but everything happens to everybody. It's like Martha saying, why me? Why not me? Everything happens to everybody. In the morning class on Wednesday mornings, um, to which I certainly invite any of you who are free to come, uh, at the end of our sittings, uh, we, I, I suggest to people that if they want, before we ring the bell, to mention the names of people that they're thinking about with special uh, kindness prayer, special intention. And people will say the name. People will say my Aunt Polly, who is uh, uh, having uh, heart surgery this morning, or my brother, who has uh, lost his sobriety after 10 years, or uh, my son, or my sister, or my cousin, or my child, or my partner. And I keep my eyes closed most of the time. And just people say them in turn, and other people, just as I do, listen. Sometimes someone says, someone is voice is uh, familiar enough to me so I know who it is that's talking. And sometimes, as last week, someone mentions a name of someone that's a very unique name. There are not so many people have that name. And I heard for the first time that that person has a serious illness. And I, I, and I, felt, and I realized that when we know about someone that we particularly know or care about, the heart leaps up. But there's a way in which that sometimes goes on for three or four or five minutes and it's actually consoling at the end that when we ring the bell, when we talk about it with each other, not so much about the who is sick with what, but how it kind of uh, gets your head on straight for the day. 
when we realize how fragile and precious this life is, how dear people become to us, uh, being anything other than kind for the days that we have in our lives. I think to myself, I do not want to lose a single day mortgaged away to self-serving grump, self-serving despair. Woe is me. Woe is everybody, really. (laughs) And if I can remember that, I can appreciate everyone, delight in my shared companionship, feel part of being a human being. I I thought I would end on uh, with another Billy Collins poem. Just because I one of my favorite things, uh, I was going to talk about. I have been talking about concentration, keeping the mind steady, mindfulness, keeping the mind alert so it remembers what's true and connects with wisdom. But effort, making the mind big enough to hold the uh, challenge of the moment so that the mind doesn't fall over in despair or anger or dismay or making the mind big enough to hold the challenge of the moment. So this is Billy Collins. And the name of the poem is Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. (laughs) He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently, as if Beethoven had included a part for Barking Dog. When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo (laughs) the endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius (laughs) it's glad to finish laughing isn't it Someone once asked me years ago when I was teaching a class in uh, for high school is here in Marin County, and I talked about the Four Noble Truths and suffering. And at one point, one young person said to me, "Do Buddhists have birthday parties?" <laughs> Sounded grim. Wanted to say that Buddhists have birthday parties and they laugh, and it's 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 about recognizing, in fact that there is suffering and there is the possibility for us as human beings to make the the mind wide enough to hold the pain 
so that it's just what it is in the context of everything else, that the mind doesn't contract in suffering, that clarity is established in such a way that wisdom prevails and our own good heart can express itself in kindness, in friendship, in compassion, and in appreciation. May our coming here together, may the merit that we accrue from being here together, all of us, and studying and learning and sitting and being together on behalf of our own peaceful hearts, may the merit that we accrue be offered generously and completely for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings everywhere be peaceful. May all beings be happy. May all beings come to the end of suffering. Thank you very much. Alan Sanaki will be here next week. It was a wonderful teacher. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.